Strip Supply acknowledges the traditional owners of the land we have recorded this podcast on, the Yagara and Turrbal people. We pay our respects to the elders past, present and emerging. G'day and welcome back to the Strip Pod, your weekly diabetes fix where we strip back the stigma for real honest conversations about life beyond the numbers. I'm Ash, a passionate diabetes advocate and founder of Strip Supply. And I'm Braden, the co-host without a working pancreas. We have such an awesome episode Ooh. today on the pod. We have interviewed uh, Drew Harrisburg, the man, the myth, the legend, better so known. So pumped about this one. Super pumped, better known on Instagram as Drew's Daily Dose. Yes. He has some super exciting news to share about something new that he's brought to the diabetes market. Yes, he does. And that might just now be on the Strip Supply website. Yeah. Mm. Absolutely. Keep your eyes out. But also just an absolute legend. Absolute legend. What, a, what an awesome dude to chat to. So pumped to get this one out and get this into your ears. So mm. I think this conversation with Drew actually changed your life a little bit, Brayden. Yeah. I had a I had a moment. Yeah, a little epiphany. I had a, That's the word I was looking yeah. for. <laughs> <laughs> I had an epiphany mid-conversation. Yep. It was an amazing chat. Um Strap yourselves in. It's quite the long one. So, mm. hope you enjoy this one as much as we enjoyed recording. It was a lot of fun. Mm, it was all gold though, so we had to keep it all in. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. We couldn't cut anything out of this one, which was, uh, I mean, it made the editing easy. So, Yeah, it did. Yep. Happy days. <laughs> um, but before we dive in, Brayden, how was your week? Yeah, my week's been quite busy. It's been good. Um, had a nice chill weekend, just hanging out with my folks up at Bribey Island and spent a bit of time on the beach and... Uh, all that sort of good stuff. So, yeah, not too much to report this week, which isn't too exciting for everyone out there, but it's probably also a nice change. You don't have to listen to me for a long time. So, um, how's your week, Ash? Uh, You've it been was, busy. It was a little bit busier than your week. Yeah. So, I got back from Sydney at the end of last week. What did you do in Sydney? We moved Strip Supply into a new pharmacy, yeah. which is very exciting. How so, exciting. we've got a bigger space. Uh, head to Instagram to check out our new space. I've posted a fun little reel um, of us setting it up. Yep. Um, but then came home on the weekend, needed to kind of detach from work a little bit. We're all about that work-life balance. Mm-hmm. Um, so I put up my Christmas tree and I Woo-hoo. hosted Galsmas. Oh, how good. With my group of friends. Oh, it was so wholesome. Yeah. It was pink and red themed, obviously. <laughs> um, and yeah, just got kind of um, all my best girlfriends together and we just all had brunch together with mimosas and yeah. croissants and bagels and it was just wonderful. Can we plug an image of your Christmas tree into a reel right here? Absolutely. Uh, right here? This is what my Christmas tree looks like. Ta-da! <laughs> <laughs> um, it, I, it brings me so much joy and so much happiness. Oh, good. Um, That's good. Well, what, I mean, what do you think of my Christmas tree? Um, yeah, it's good. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> Crickets. <laughs> <laughs> no, it looks good. I'm just just messing with you because it's worry. very pink. It's very pink. Yeah. I won't put it up in your house. I promise. Yeah, no, please don't. Um, yeah. And well, have you put up your Christmas tree? Um, yeah, we have actually. We have put up the Christmas tree. Amazing. It's never too early. It's never I mean, too early. It's, I mean, just wrap it up. Call it a year now. Honestly, what a year. Mm-hmm. I actually felt like I was late to the party. Yeah. Like I think the rest of the year is just going to go so fast. It's probably yeah. good that you had a quiet weekend because yeah. it's just going to be action packed from here on in. That's right. Got a few busy weekends coming up, so mm. had to get it up nice and early. Mm-hmm. Um, but speaking of Christmas, mm. what does a diabetic elf need? <laughs> I don't know. Tinselin. Oh. <laughs> 
Uh, I thought yes. because we'd already recorded Got her. today's episode, it didn't include a Brayden joke. No, I had to sneak it into the intro. Yeah, you didn't want to tell Drew your Brayden joke? Oh, I didn't have one lined up for no. Drew. Sorry, Drew. No. Um, Got ya. But today's episode, it might sound a little bit different because obviously I was in Sydney interviewing yeah. Drew in the room and Brayden... I got stuck in Brisbane. I How know. rude. He was invited, I promise. I was stuck up here working. Mm. Someone's got to keep working, you know? I know. Someone has a yeah. real job. Yep. <laughs> yep. So today's quality might sound a little bit different. I was recording from my, uh, well, my lounge room, really. <laughs> um, so just bear with us, but... I hope you enjoy it as much as, as we did recording it. Mm-hmm. Without further ado, here is our chat with Drew. Woohoo! So today we're chatting with Drew Harrisburg, who many people know better as Drew's Daily Dose. Now, Drew is an exercise physiologist, diabetes educator. He's been living with diabetes after a pretty unusual diagnosis at age 22, which was over 12 years ago now. Self-confessed as happier and healthier today than he was before his diagnosis, Drew has found his purpose, equipping people with the tools they need to take control of their health and live their best, fullest life. Drew, well, Welcome to the Strip Pod. Thank you for having me. Thank you for the intro. It's like I wrote it. (laughs) (laughs) Almost like your website did. (laughs) (laughs) Straight off the website. I love it. Um, So, Drew, let's dive straight in. So, you have spoken extensively about diabetes and your journey on podcasts over the past few years, but for the first time, you're here speaking to your people. Yeah. You don't need to explain diabetes here. You don't need to tell us what a CGM is. Don't have to define the difference between type 1 and type 2. You don't. We know, and we're not talking about type 2 today. I've done that so many times. (laughs) I reckon every podcast I've ever done, that that's the first question. Yeah. What's the difference between the different types? So you, you know? don't need to, you can use all the terminology you like with us and awesome. you don't have to explain. Exactly, exactly. Um, and so we're so excited to dive into the nitty gritty of how you manage your diabetes and your mindset around it too. Um, so to kick us off, let's touch briefly on your diagnosis because it was a little bit unusual. Uh, so this was over 10 years ago now, but your diagnosis story is a little bit different to the norm because you were diagnosed with type 1 in a doctor's office in a much calmer setting than what most people experience. So you weren't put on insulin straight away. Can you take us back to that period of your life and tell us how you became diagnosed with type 1 diabetes? Yeah, it was a unique experience. Um, Somewhat kind of blessed the way it turned out because Mm -hmm. most people's experiences are a lot more severe than mine. Basically, I mean, I just finished university. Uh, I graduated as a sports scientist and I was in the middle of doing my accreditation to become an exercise physiologist. And I was doing all this work experience with um, physiotherapists and I was working at a a, uh, hospital doing a cardiac rehab, sort of like, I was like the trainee there. I was just getting my hours up basically so I'd get my accreditation. And there was just a period of like six months where I was, you know, the, the, the most common signs and symptoms. So absolutely exhausted, falling asleep every single day, um, thirsty, hungry, waking up to go to the toilet, all of those things. But I was, I was falling asleep driving and it was happening often. So most days that I'd leave this hospital, which is in Sutherland, it's like a 40 odd minute drive back mm-hmm. even more, maybe an hour. I was fighting micro sleeps the whole way home and it was happening for like a couple of weeks. And I knew that this was not normal, but I thought I was just tired from long work days and getting up early driving to Sutherland. So I was keeping an eye on it, but I wasn't worried about anything at that point. And then there was a couple of times where I fell asleep driving, you know, in a tunnel and I was like, my life's at risk here. This is getting seriously bad. And I basically leveraged my 
parents who are doctors and I said to them, something's wrong, I need blood tests. And we, we got some blood tests done and the, the main sort of biomarker that came back out of range was, well, my fasting glucose was normal, but my HbA1c was pre-diabetic at that point. And it was a little bit confusing because, you know, we, we were expecting that if, if the A1c was out, that maybe my fasting glucose would be elevated too, but it wasn't. So anyway, again, leveraging my resources, my dad worked at RPA Hospital. Um, he's an eye doctor. And I went to the diabetes clinic there, which he worked with very closely. And we did another blood test, this time looking at autoimmune antibodies. Um, because we had the A1C was elevated, we knew we had to look at, into it, you know, to a, to a deeper level. And my antibodies came back and they were in the thousands. Like they were just, I was, it was so clear on paper that my risk for type 1 was now quite high. Wow. I think it was like one in four, 25% chance mm -hmm. that I was going to develop type 1. And I was in total denial. Like there's, I just couldn't believe what happened to me. So... Well, you're in your early 20s, right? Who thinks early you're, 20s, invis you're invincible? Yeah, invincible, prime of life. Like I'm just, mm -hmm. all I want to do is travel the world. And I was playing a lot of music at the time. So I was playing mm -hmm. gigs all over Sydney and I wanted to go overseas and try like a music career in, you know, LA. Mm -hmm. Had all these dreams, these wild dreams. And, um, <laughs> As we all do in our bit, 20s. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, they said, look, look, you've these antibodies have come back elevated. Your risk of diabetes is increased. You just need to like monitor your blood glucose levels for the next... I don't know, it could be weeks. They said it could be weeks, could be years. Maybe it won't happen at all, but maybe one day you'll get type 1 diabetes. Just keep an eye on it. That was basically the, the advice, just keep an eye on it, mm -hmm. which meant at that point, daily finger pricks, right? So testing my blood glucose when I woke up every morning and they said if it's ever above, you know, they said like basically seven millimoles or seven point something, mm -hmm. come into the clinic. And I checked it, you know, after meals, I checked it in the morning, I checked it before bed. I was just non-diabetic, like, sorry, your person living without diabetes, but checking my blood glucose every day. So it was confusing because I didn't really know what, like what, what was I? I was sort of in this no man's land. Mm -hmm. Long story short, I went into the clinic after like two weeks of checking my blood glucose and 99% of the results were normal, but I had this one fasting blood glucose that was elevated, seven point something, close to eight. And I went in to show them my logbook and the diabetes educator informed me that they just had a new blood glucose meter come in from a you know sales rep and it was like smaller and easier to use and more accurate and would I like to try it? So I was like, yeah, let's give it a crack. So she opens a brand new box, pricks my finger, shows me how to use it. And on that test that we were learning how to use the device, I was diagnosed with diabetes. I had my blood glucose was like 16 or something like that. Wow. Yeah. So it was like face to face with a diabetes educator, pricking my finger to show me how to use the device next to my dad, who is a you know, an, an eye surgeon who spends his career helping people with diabetes mm -hmm. in the clinic that he'd worked with for like 15 years or 20 years or something. So it was, it was such a strange way to get diagnosed. Um, but I, I, I mean, I wasn't like rushed to hospital. There was no ambulance. There was no near death experience. It was just, it was, it was almost more confusing because I felt semi okay compared mm -hmm. to how other people are diagnosed. And such an extended period of time as well. It, yeah. you're, you're hanging in this balance. Um, but yeah, oh, certainly, yeah, yeah. yeah, certainly a very unusual diagnosis. Um, but obviously we're very glad that you were happy and healthy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I, look, I was 13, 14 kilos lighter than I should have been. Like I'd lost a lot of weight. Yeah. I didn't look healthy at all. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, health, it's relative, right? Mm -hmm. Relative to somebody who is in full-blown ketoacidosis and maybe unconscious being rushed to hospital, yeah, I looked healthy. Mm. But compared to my previous self, I did not look or feel healthy at all. Like mm. I felt terrible. True. what was your lifestyle like when you were diagnosed? 
Were you active, fit? Yes, yes. It was very similar. It was very similar to sort of what it is now. Um, I loved sport. I played a lot of sport. I was very active. I loved the gym. I loved to exercise. I was pretty health conscious in terms of you know the meals that I would eat and the foods that I'd focus on. I would say it was very similar to what it is now, but less intense, perhaps. Right, so I had, there was a bit more leeway, and you know, I would drink more alcohol, and I'd party a little bit with with my mates, and I'd go away and maybe not train for a couple of weeks. But now it's like a lot more regimented. Um, but it was very similar, very very similar. Yeah, right. I suppose that leads us into what we want to talk about with you and food, especially. You've dabbled in a fair few different di- uh, diets, sort of pre and post diagnosis. So, what is your what does your diet look like now? I have dabbled in multiple diets. I've tried so many. And the reason, just to, just to be clear, like the reason I try all of these things is because I do think that self-experimentation is one of the best tools that we can use because everyone's so different. Right? I don't like blanket recommendations for people, um, whether you have diabetes or not. I just don't, th- I think we're all individuals and we'll, we're going to respond to different protocols and interventions differently. Mm, so, everybody, everybody is so different, right? And mm. even even within the same individual, there's mm. variation, right? So you mm. could eat the exact—I mean, you would know this, Braden. Like, you could eat the exact same meal three days in a row and have completely different blood glucose responses to the same meal at the same time, depending on other factors: stress levels, sleep, hydration, yeah. mm-hmm. insulin sensitivity on that day. Did you dose correctly? Like. It's complicated, right? Mm-hmm. So for me, it was like yep. experiment as much as possible, especially early on, make the failures early, grasp those learnings early, and then it, it sh- hopefully my diabetes management will become easier going forward. So the first thing I dabbled yep. dabbled in was um, like a low-carb paleo kind of diet, which, you know, when you step away from a standard Australian diet, that's a pretty healthy diet, right? A lot of vegetables, some fruit, low carb so you're not eating like whole grains or legumes or anything but you're eating you know a lot of like real whole foods Mm -hmm. but i was doing you know a version that was also very very meat heavy like a like a just typical aussie kid in his early 20s like eating heaps of like beef and chicken eggs Mm -hmm. all of that stuff that's not familiar to brayden brayden doesn't quite know what that diet looks like do you brayden (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no, yeah, because what, the vegetable party? What are those? What are those? Yeah. Green? Greens. Um, Got the vegetables, so, just the meat. And, yeah. <laughs> and that served me for, for many years, to be mm. honest. Like my, my control on that sort of paleo low-carb diet was really good. Mm. For seven years, I was like pretty strict with it. Not like crazy strict, but I would stick to it as much as possible. I would eat some like refined foods here and there, and I'd still drink alcohol and stuff like that. But... Most of the time, I was my time in range was pretty good. Mm-hmm. However, I wasn't using CGM, so I thought my time in range was good based on the readings I was taking. But as you know, in between readings, who knows what the blood glucose is doing? Right? Could fluctuate. It could go up and down. You're just getting these snapshots of this system that's moving around. Mm. So, and then I tried an even more extreme version of a low carb diet. So I went on the keto version of it. So I cut my carbs down to like less than, I don't know, 5% of my total calories. And again, like pretty good numbers in the beginning, like low insulin requirements. Um, average glucose was low. It was pretty flat line, pretty steady. So things were things were good for a couple months. But it was towards the back end of that experiment, the keto is where I ran into some pr- proper hurdles. Like my insulin sensitivity was just terrible towards the end of it. In fact, my like glucose tolerance, not just for the food that I was eating, but mm-hmm. like the glucose that my body was producing, 
I couldn't get the insulin to work to get the glucose out of my bloodstream. So my insulin requirements started to go the other way. So at first they dropped. So I went on the keto diet, my insulin requirements dropped down. And I was like, this is too easy. Like I'm reversing diabetes here. This is this is a breeze, right? I'm, I'm, a, got, I'm a medical marvel. Yeah, I got so like <laughs> overconfident about it. And I was sharing this on social media and I was raving about it. And I was telling everyone like, you, this keto is amazing. It keeps you flat. Your numbers are going to be incredible. Mm. And then fast forward four months and it was it was pretty hard to turn that around. Like I was, I was taking more and more basal insulin, more and more bolus, even though I wasn't eating high amounts of carbohydrate. Mm -hmm. And my fasting blood glucose was terrible. Every morning it would, I'd wake up and it was higher and higher. Mm. Um, and then that's when I knew I had to make another change. So the, that's when I went plant-based, the total opposite. So like a high carb, you know, lower fat version um, of like a vegan diet, but like whole food, right? So like a whole food plant-based version of it. Um, and now I've been on that for five years. So, wow. you know, close to the, the duration of those that paleo experiment. So yeah, I've been I've been trying a whole bunch of things, but since I went plant based, interestingly, my insulin sensitivity is the best it's ever been. Um, my insulin to carb ratio, being an indicator, mm -hmm. is like for me, you know, really good. So after a workout, which as you know, you're more insulin sensitive after a workout anyway. Um, my insulin requirements or my ratio is about one to thirty or one to thirty five, so pretty solid. Um, and then like outside of that window of a post workout. It's still pretty good, like one to twenty comfortably. Um, sometimes one to twenty-five. So it's, I'm really happy with that. My insulin requirements are, are not that high either. So, you know, just it, just the predictability, the consistency of my blood glucose control. I'm I'm really happy with where it is. So mm. I'm probably not going to be experimenting with any new diets anytime soon. I just feel like that defies everything that we think about. Diabetes and insulin. Like, Brayden, you were laughing when Drew was mentioning, you know, his insulin sensitivities, unit ratios. What's to give us, you know, some comparison, Brayden, what's your insulin sensitivity look like? Yeah, mine's about one unit per 11 grams of carbs. Right. And, and I think the, the important thing to double click on here is carbs in certain contexts can be problematic for people. Mm -hmm. But in other contexts that can be really beneficial and actually quite easy to manage. It, and and the, the, the context that makes it difficult is when your saturated fat intake is high. Saturated fat worsens insulin sensitivity, right? So we all know how difficult it is to eat a pizza if you have diabetes. It's my favorite got, meme yep. to make. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> We've got refined carbohydrates. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, like, it's just one of those foods that everyone knows. It's hard. How do you deal with it? You get these really late you know, spikes in blood glucose, usually when you're sleeping, if you've had your pizza for dinner um, and you have to split your bolus and, you know, you have to give sometimes 60% more insulin as a total bolus for the meal. And the reason is, is that that saturated fat in the cheese mm -hmm. and the refined carbohydrates, that combination is like, it's so tricky to deal with. So if you're eating, if you want to eat high carbohydrate diet on a meal to meal basis, if you can keep your saturated fat low, you'll improve your insulin sensitivity. Furthermore, if you can swap those saturated fats for unsaturated fats, it improves your insulin sensitivity even more. So it's just knowing what is the fat source you're having, right? So like swapping coconut oil for olive oil, swapping you know fatty cuts of meat for maybe like fish or salmon or tofu or a plant-based protein source. Those are the little tricks. And, and I mean, I hate to use the word trick because it's not like magic or anything, but you know those things can help. 
a lot. They, they seem very, very minimal, but over time, they make a big difference. And mm. it took me a couple of weeks for my body to start adjusting. What does your diet look like, Drew? What do you eat? So, okay, I'll, talk, I'll take you through a day on my plate today. So I usually f- wake up and do a fasted workout, right? Because I want to do exercise with not much insulin on board, almost zero, because I don't want the anxiety of going low in a workout. So I'll have coffee. Mm-hmm. If I'm having a coffee and I'm not going to work out straight away, I'll need some insulin because just the caffeine alone will send my blood glucose up. So I'll have a small amount of insulin with my coffee, even a black coffee, even if there's no milk, no sugar, nothing. It's just the caffeine in a black coffee can send your blood glucose higher. So I'll take like one, maybe one and a half units. I, I use a, a child's pen that has half units. Do so you really? Yeah, yeah. Because you're Because I want to because I'm sensitive. Mm. So, so I need like to be increments of, of half mm. units. And you're also such a, a bit of a data nerd. So a little bit data just, nerdy, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you really like to have that control. <laughs> I want to know. I love that. <laughs> so I'll take a little bit of insulin with the coffee, then I'll work out fasted, and then after that workout, I'll have my first meal of the day, which is usually going to be like a smoothie bowl, so like frozen berries, frozen banana, like an almond or a soy milk, a scoop of protein. I take creatine as well, which... The, the data on creatine and diabetes is actually really interesting, and there's some evidence that it can help with glucose tolerance. Um, and I noticed a massive difference. When I started taking creatine, I was going low. I had so many hypos for the first like week or two, and I was on a loading, really? so I was taking 20 grams, like big doses. Mm-hmm. But even on a maintenance dose of like two to five grams a day, mm-hmm. my glucose tolerance has been pretty amazing. So wow. creatine for me is, I, I take it for performance, and I take it for diabetes management. Very important there. Um, mm. And then like granola and nuts and sort of peanut butter. Like I just make these big smoothie bowls, famous on my Instagram because I post it every every day. Um, <laughs> and then lunch could be, you know, like a giant sort of Buddha bowl, like a base of greens, brown rice, quinoa, lentils, avocado, um, tempeh or tofu. That's my main sort of protein source. Um, you know, olive oil, salt and pepper. It's a basic, pretty basic stuff. All the good stuff. All the good stuff. Sweet mm. potato. Like I, I, I'm not afraid of carbs anymore. I definitely had a little fear of carbs at one point. Well, I do think I can hear some of our listeners um, like getting anxiety over hearing yeah. your day on a plate. Yeah. So yeah, keep taking us through. What like what are you going to have for dinner tonight? Um, so dinners, I'm working on a recipe book. So I'm trying like all these different cuisines at the moment. Oh, that's but, fun. Yeah, but I'm, I do tend to look for the lower carb versions of like the traditional foods that I love mm-hmm. like pasta pasta and pizza I just don't eat the traditional versions mm-hmm. and I basically learned in the first year of having diabetes that I don't like the feeling of waking up six hours after that meal with a high blood sugar and I've, it's just too hard to manage so I'm, I'm mm-hmm. happy to just take that off the menu but I found alternatives so like like let's say tonight I'll have like a like a let's say a pesto pasta kind of dish right with like heaps of greens like broccolini and asparagus and mushrooms and mm. the pasta base is made of beans right so it's low carb very high protein it's like forty grams of protein per serve very high fiber um, and then I, I barely need any insulin with that sort of meal like two two and a half units for the whole meal mm-hmm. um, add some maybe tofu or tempeh but yeah it's it's just think like big. Big Buddha bowls, salad bowls, you know, and just anytime I want those traditional, say, Italian or Mexican dishes, I just swap out whatever the high carb version is for a lower carb, higher protein version. That's what I sort of tend to do at the moment. But the, my menu has grown so much. Mm. Yeah. What does your daily dose of insulin look like? And pardon the pun with your Instagram name, but 
Nice, well played. How, how many units of insulin? Yeah, no, thank you very much. How many units of insulin do you use per day? Do you think? So it varies, um, depending on how active I am. So, so yes, was it yesterday? Monday. I'll, I'll talk you through. What day is it? Not sure. Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. <it's> Wednesday. <laughs> Wednesday. <laughs> so Monday, I did. So I did two workouts. So the, on the on the days that I do two workouts, my insulin dose is very very low. Mm-hmm. So I had gym in the morning, and then in the evening I play footy. Mm-hmm. So. I knew when I took my basal the night before that my day was going to be very active. So I reduced that dose from about 13 units to 10. So 10 units of basal the night before. Then th- then throughout that day, I had three like main meals and one snack. And for each main meal, roughly f- three to four units of insulin, maybe five for one of them. So let's, let's just say 12 to 15 units of insulin and 10 units of basal. So yeah, like 22 to 25 units total. But that was eating 250 grams of carbs or more in that day. So it's a high carb day for, wow. for you know, not that much insulin when you think about how much carbs I'm eating. Mm. But yeah, roughly, I mean, it changes day to day. But just on that particular day, yeah, it was probably like 22 units of insulin. Yeah. Yeah, wow, that's amazing. Do you calculate that for yourself? Like, is that something you pay attention to each day, or do you um, just not yeah, really? So I, yeah, so I, I, no, not so much, not to that level. Um, so I have the insulin pump, which trickles in my basal rate throughout the day, um, and then I carb count, and my insulin pump calculates based on my insulin sensitivity how much insulin I'll need for that meal. Right, and and do you find that certain meals worsen your sensitivity to insulin? So, like that traditional thing about the pizza, like yeah, yeah, with the pizza, the pasta, those high carb meals, and the the higher fats, the saturated fats, definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's crazy, like the insight that we get into our bodies on like a meal to meal basis. It's just unbelievable. And you know what? It was sort of surprised me, which it probably shouldn't. this same like physiological response happens in people without diabetes to an extent where that meat, like a pizza, I've seen it happen. There was this YouTuber, he was like this really like keto, you know, advocate, um, very low carb, very anti-carbohydrate. And he went out for a meal to like a vegan restaurant to like prove how bad veganism is for you. (laughs) Ah, yes. And he was wearing a CGM, not diabetic, wearing Mm -hmm. CGM and documented the whole thing on YouTube and basically because he was, he lost his glucose tolerance over being keto for two years, right? Which is what happens. Mm-hmm. Your glucose tolerance goes down mm-hmm. because you're not eating carbohydrates. The body's not sure what to do with them right. anymore. Yeah, yeah. So you, like the enzymes are not upregulated and your body just can't tolerate glucose that well. Mm-hmm. He then goes and eats a meal that was like basically what we were just saying, high refined carbs and high saturated fat, like deep fried sort of tempura style, you know, foods. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that night, like during the meal, fine. CGM was showing like basically flat lines for the next two hours, fine. Six hours later, spike. And this isn't someone without diabetes, right? Mm. So it just shows you that what what the meal is made up of and the, the way the macronutrients sort of like combine is a really important part of managing blood glucose. Mm. And speaking of peaks and troughs, um, what is your go-to hypo food? Because being being plant-based, yeah. you know, Braden talks a lot about his Alan's party mix, but uh, what's... What's your go-to? I think you can get vegan versions of those. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, you probably can these days. I Here's the thing. 
whilst I'm plant-based, I'm not like a militant vegan about like what's in it. Like if the glucose is going to save my life, I'm gonna, <laughs> no matter what's in it, Are you vegan sure? or not, I'm taking it, right? So, but but I, I actually tend to go for like I'll take fruit if I can. Yeah. It depends on the context of the low. If mm. I'm double arrows down, crashing low, need glucose immediately, this is urgent, emergency, I'm going to take like either a glucose gel that like you would have, you know, if you're cycling or an endurance athlete, like mm. those kinds of gels. Or like glucose tabs, glucose jelly beans, those kinds of things. Some fast acting. Fast. Get it in there straight away. If I know I'm going to catch the low a little bit earlier, I don't want to be eating candy all day, right? And I, and I can feel like even just chewing jelly beans all day, I don't know if it's that good for your teeth. So I, I don't want to be eating jelly beans. So what I do is I'll, I'll use fruit or fruit juice or something else that I can either drink or eat that I know will maybe the glucose will enter my bloodstream slower but it'll do do the job mm. right as long as it's not urgent i'll i'll tend to go for like fruit or juice or something like that mm. so there is uh another food another food topic um that we wanted to touch on and um uh, particularly um, with women in our community talk about this a lot and um there's a lot of data and research um, to say that, you know, type 1 diabetes unfortunately goes hand in hand with disordered eating. Uh, I think the the latest research has shown that 30% of people living with type 1 also have an eating disorder. Mm. Have you, throughout all of these different diets and seeing your different insulin requirements, we, we see a lot in our community that people do um, place a lot of importance on how much insulin they're dosing and using that as uh, a way to track if they're eating too much. And right. I say that in quotation marks. Have you ever experienced these feelings in your journey so far of disordered eating or letting thoughts like that or judgments around what you're eating enter your mindset? Yes, absolutely. Yes. So the first two years, because the, the change is so drastic, you go from like being on autopilot to now being weighing food Mm. tracking the numbers, calculating the ratio to insulin. Counting carbs, it's just, counting it's, grams. It's mathematics mm. and it's you're just obsessing over these numbers. So what happened to me was I actually, because I understood how dangerous it can be if your blood glucose is out of range for long periods of time and I knew the long-term complications were, was pretty scary, mm -hmm. I just wanted to avoid those at all costs. So, I mean, my version of an eating disorder was a little bit different. It was that if I was in range, I just wouldn't eat, Period. I just wanted to stay in range for as long as possible. So sometimes I would just skip meals. I'd be like, oh. like let's say I was having a hard time getting into my target range and then I finally get into range and it's lunchtime. I'll be like, oh, I don't want to really mess this up. I'm going to skip lunch. so worried about making one misstep. Or right. And then being out of range for another four hours. Mm -hmm. And I was like, mm -hmm. my emotions were tied to these numbers. Every up and down of, of blood glucose was an up and down in mood. Like mm -hmm. I was just... I hated seeing these fluctuations. So as soon as I was in range, I'm like, oh, finally, the relief. How can I stay in range for the next six hours? No food. So I, mm. I just stopped eating. Like it, was, it was a terrible way to deal with it. But, mm. I, I mean, I didn't know any better. Mm. Um, and I was making mistakes early, and it was fine, and I made a lot of mistakes. Yeah, so I, I definitely experienced those kinds of things. I also had a carb phobia for many years when I was on the low-carb diet. I just didn't want to eat carbohydrates. Mm. I had a total daily insulin sort of number in mind, arbitrary number that I sort of made up, yep. the lower the better, mm. so to speak, the yeah. lower the better. In quotations. Right, mm. and the flatter the better when it comes to your glucose level. So mm. like all of those things kind of got in the way because then I would make decisions 
like food food choices based on those numbers. Am I in range? Is my blood glucose flat? Yes or no? If I'm in range, either don't eat or eat only carb. Uh, sorry, fat and protein, no carbs. Mm-hmm. Right. So yeah, I, I've I definitely experienced all of those things, and it mm-hmm. took years, years and years and years to. Firstly, I had to let go of the what I still think is a kind of a false notion that insulin makes you fat. Right. So just because your insulin numbers are low, it doesn't mean you're just going to all, all of a sudden lose weight. And just because you take higher doses of insulin doesn't mean you're just going to gain weight. Mm-hmm. The en- energy balance is still the king, right? Calories in, calories out. It doesn't matter. You just need to take whatever the, whatever dose of insulin you need to be able to eat the health, healthy, nourishing foods is what you need. Mm-hmm. And I had to like surrender to that and just be okay with, you know, when I was low carb, like the highest dose I would ever take was three units of insulin or two and a half, let's say. But now I'm, I can take five or six and I have to be okay with, even though the dose has doubled, it doesn't mean I'm just going to all of a sudden gain weight mm. or you know, ha, you know, have higher risk of going low. It's just knowing the numbers and trusting the process. And, and it was sort of like surrendering, let it go. Like, don't worry about the outcome. Just do what is right in that moment. And then you sort of become more confident with your choices. Was there a, a trigger to that mindset shift? Or did you realize that, you know, you didn't have energy, yeah. you know, because essentially you weren't giving your body the food that it needed. Yes. Uh, yes. Can, yeah, can you remember yeah, can, that shift? Yeah, I can. Yeah. So clearly. I can remember two moments, like the darkest moments where I was like, I have to make a change. Like this is not serving me. Mm-hmm. One of them was I was, I was doing this like photo shoot for this brand for like a big campaign and there was a huge team, like a big production team. We're in a studio on set, there's lights and I'm like inside. My blood sugar is 15, right? It's first thing in the morning, like eight o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. I woke up and my blood sugar was 15. Gave a correction dose, didn't move. Gave another one, didn't move. And I was like rage bolusing. I was just like so mad. That I was giving these big doses of insulin to try to, which is terrible, don't ever do that. <laughs> like obviously that's not a good way to try to manage your diabetes. But I was like, uh, I was fed up, right? So gave these big doses, my blood glucose would not budge. I was, my, my liver was just pouring glucose out. And I was insulin resistant from probably the stress that I'd put my body under for all of those months of being in a, a huge calorie deficit, not eating enough food, skipping all those meals, mm-hmm. and training like extra, extra hard, like two, three a day workouts. I was doing like everything wrong, basically. And I remember the team came up to me and they're like, are you okay? And I was like, I said yes, but inside I was like suffering. You were not okay. I was not okay at all. Mm. And I just had to put on a brave face, get through the shoot. At the end of that day, I just remember getting into my car, sitting down, checking my, and it was still like 15 to 20. I, I never got it under control. Mm. I didn't eat that day either. Full, like literally the whole day, no food at all. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is not serving me anymore. Like this is, it's just not working. I have to do something different. And that's where I was like, okay, it's time to surrender. Mm. I don't even care if my body changes if I don't care about anything. I just need to get my numbers under control. So I remember that was like the first moment where I knew that if I kept doing this, it's only going to get worse. Because it was your quality of life. Yeah, just my mental health. Yeah. Like on the outside, you would never know. Like Mm. I was still training hard and playing sport and in the gym every day. Mm. But inside I was in agony. And even just walking up a flight of stairs hurt. Like I was was fatigued. I was exhausted, you know. I'm glad I let that go. How... How long into your diabetes journey was this, Drew? This was early on. So this was, uh, so I was, I was 22 when I was diagnosed. I would have been 24, I reckon, when that happened. Still actually, I mean, two years in. 
it's a long time. It's a long time, yeah. right? You, you would think that you would get most of your learnings early, but I just think we're never, I think we're always learning. Like I think that the learning curve is, it's, it's endless, really. Mm. I'm still learning. So we'll move into chatting about exercise, mm-hmm. which is your specialty as an exercise physiologist. You've worked in this industry for, you know, over a decade now. Um, and you've mentioned before about how your diagnosis, uh, at the time, it felt like a death sentence. You're in your early 20s, got this life-changing chronic illness, um, all these hopes and dreams that didn't really align with having a chronic illness, I'm sure. And you woke up the day after your diagnosis as a completely different person. But then you went to the gym and you saw the effect exercise had on your diabetes. And you've mentioned before that it just it, you felt like you had regained control a little bit after feeling like your body was out of control. Tell us about your journey with different kinds of exercise and what role exercise plays now in not just your diabetes, but also your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I was sent home from the clinic. So I had that diagnosis face to face with when she pricked my finger and I saw that basically I had diabetes through a glucometer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I was sent home without insulin because I hadn't yet learned how to use it. What, what should my doses be? Like we just weren't sure. We didn't want to take any risks. And mm. They sort of said to me, are you very active? And I'm like, yes. And they're like, well, probably best that we don't give you insulin straight away because if you have high insulin in your, in your system and you're very active, it can be risk a risk for going low and having some some trouble. So mm-hmm. I was sent home without insulin. So my first meal of the day, the day after being diagnosed, was a carb-based meal with no insulin. So what do you think happened? My blood glucose spiked to 25 plus, And I was not happy about that. So I went to the gym. As I would usually do, they said, just do your normal daily routine. Go through the motions, collect the data. So prick your finger before and after all of your meals, when you wake up, before bed, all of that stuff. And so I did that. I went to the gym and I did a workout and I spent an hour just free in the gym, moving my body. I loved it. And I I left the gym and I checked my blood glucose as I was told to and was back down into the normal range. And I didn't even know that was possible. So like for me to learn that on day one was like, I'm so grateful for it. It was the best lesson I could have ever learned because it was so early on. So I immediately went from like rock bottom to hope and like positivity and wow, I can actually manage this. This is going to be, I think I'm going to be okay. Mm-hmm. And then for the next you know months and years, it was experimenting with different kinds of exercise and what does it do to your blood glucose? What, what does it do at different times a day? You know, and I made lots of mistakes. Like early on, I, I just thought, because I had that learning on day one, I thought that all exercise improved blood glucose levels, period, full stop. And it's not true. So I would then, you know, the next day or the next week, I'd wake up early, 6 a.m., and I'd do like a sunrise sort of like sprint session on Bondi Beach. But I'd get a coffee before I did that and give no insulin. And then I'd finish that workout and my blood sugar would be 20. And I woke up and it was six. So I'm like, learning straight away that different times a day, different intensities of exercise are going to have a different impact on your blood glucose level. Mm. Strength training, resistance training, sprinting, long walks, cardio, aerobic training. There's so many different ways to move your body and they all have little you know, unique benefits. Um, but if you do them in the wrong context, it can actually worsen your management. Well, it, so, would, it would be too easy if they all had the same effect. And it wouldn't be that sensible for the human body to have the same Absolutely effect. Absolutely not. Yeah. No, no, no. We want to make it as difficult as possible. Right. Yeah, yeah. Let's make this tricky. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, but so, yeah, I mean, the, the learnings are still continuing to this day. Mm. You know, sometimes I'll play 
you know, footy, in, it's, it's an evening match and I've got insulin on board and I'll go low. Mm-hmm. And then other times I'll play the same evening match with less insulin on board and I'll spike super high. Mm-hmm. And it depends on the intensity of the game. Like, is your opposition a very good team that lifts the intensity or is it a slower game? So these things just make it so complicated because you don't know each time you show up, if you're if it's team sport, what the opponent is going to be. Like, it's mm-hmm. easier if you're in the gym and you're dictating your intensity, but when the other team is dictating your intensity, it can be really hard. So, like, sport and athletics for people with diabetes is pretty tricky. That's really interesting. I've never thought about it that way before. Mm. I say that, Drew. I've said it a few times on this podcast too. I feel like you can do two things the exact same way and have completely two different outcomes on your diabetes. And I think what you just said sort of reiterated that statement and it it does – it can be tricky and, you know, you're trying to balance diabetes but then you're also trying to balance the other team's intensity like – Things like that just throw a whole nother spinner in the works, which is crazy. Which is why I have so much respect for like elite athletes at the highest level who have type 1 diabetes, like a rugby player who yeah. can you know get on the field week after week and perform well. Because you've got to remember as well, you you feel different depending on what your blood glucose is. If When you're high, as you know, it, you don't feel good. So trying to be like a good athlete in a team sport when you feel terrible and you've got the pressure of your team and coach seeing you as potentially like the anchor who's going to hold the team back, mm-hmm. right? Because I, I, I train a young kid who is really worried that his coach looks at his diabetes as a, a downside that may pull the team down, oh. right? But he's a great, he's skilled, brilliant athlete. Mm. But there are times where his mood is off because his sugar's high and then he's playing badly and then he gets off the field at the end, uh, you know, at the end of the game and he's thinking, I wish I didn't have diabetes, it's ruined my chances of becoming an elite professional sportsman yeah so it's if like the psychology of it is even hard Mm. but um you know most of the i think i only know one example of an elite athlete who became a professional after the diagnosis so a lot of the ones that i know of were diagnosed with type 1 diabetes as a young kid grew up with it still were able to make the highest level of a sports team Sort of had such a, a good understanding of it. Right. Dave. And also, yes. And, and they didn't allow it to become an excuse to not make it. Mm. But I think there's only one or two examples of somebody who was diagnosed later who then still became, you know, the, the, the ones that I know anyway. Mm. I could be wrong. There mm. could be multiple others. But it's hard. Like psychologically, mentally, it's, it's very tricky. Mm. And uh, it is more usual with a diabetes diagnosis that people are. Uh, almost banned from exercise for the first four to six weeks post-diagnosis when it is one of those emergency settings, which is important uh, as people are learning what diabetes is and how to live with diabetes. But it does also cause some unease and anxiety heading back into exercise after a diagnosis. And we see in our community a lot of people don't head back to exercise. They don't pick it back up again because of this fear. Um, It's been drummed into them. You know, insulin plus exercise equals no-go zone. Um, So do you have any advice speaking directly to other people just like you around overcoming exercise anxiety? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a fair anxiety to have because the potential complications are pretty extreme, right? Mm -hmm. If you do overdose, if you take too much insulin and you do a type of exercise that lowers your blood glucose fast, it can be pretty catastrophic, right? So it is a fair anxiety on paper. But when you understand how to do it safely, it's actually, 
you can get rid of that fear and anxiety because there are really pretty, you know, pretty safe ways to do it. First thing I would say is create a buffer in your blood glucose before you start your workout. Like it's okay, be high for a little bit. Send your blood glucose, purposely eat something that sends you up to, I don't know, eight millimoles, nine, even 10, right? Send it up there and use that as an experiment You and, and take note of how much insulin is on board. So what is my blood glucose when I start? Is it eight, nine or 10, whatever it is? How much insulin is on board? What is the type of exercise I'm doing? Is it aerobic or is it anaerobic, like high intensity sprinting or strength training? And then see what happens over the next sort of 10, 20, 30, 40 minutes. And if you're wearing a CGM, you can collect all that great data. If not, prick your finger frequently. Like really go every 15 to 20 minutes, take a reading. Like let's see what's happening, get some trends and patterns. If you find that you have this very slow sort of gradual drop from aerobic training, and you know that over the course of that workout, you know, your blood glucose dropped only two millimoles or three or four millimoles, take note. And then you start slowly build the confidence to, instead of sending your blood glucose to 10 or 12 at the start of your workout, maybe you can get some confidence to start your workout with your blood sugar at an eight or a seven, right? So like slow and be, be okay with having a high blood glucose while you're experimenting. Like high blood glucose chronically, we all know, is not a good thing, mm -hmm. right? But short term, if it gives you the confidence to exercise safely, lean on that. And that's what I did. So I would lean on these high blood glucose levels, learn how to exercise and see what happens. And then sometimes I would notice that my blood glucose could be in range and then it would end up going higher and out of range by the end of the workout. And then for years, four years, five years, I... I didn't know and I didn't have the confidence to actually give some insulin before those kinds of workouts, right? I was Because I had just associated insulin and exercise bad, mm -hmm. one or the other, mm -hmm. right? If you're going to have insulin on board, you can't move your body. If you're going to move your body, no insulin. That's just how I separated it. But it's just not true. I mean, there was a great study. I think it only came out a few years ago looking at like a, pr a protocol, an insulin protocol for people doing high-intensity interval training with diabetes. And it was a pre- like it was how to correct, right? So pre what you do with your workout and then it's how do we correct a blood glucose level that's elevated? Like, do you give the full dose? Do you give 50% of the dose, 20%? And this study, I can't remember the name of it, but I can give it to you after if you want to add some notes. Yeah. But it, it gives you this like beautiful way of managing your blood glucose after intense training. And then you can you sort of like flip that and go, well, if I know my blood glucose is going to raise by X, Y, or Z, hmm. maybe I can pre-bowl this with a very safe amount of insulin, just enough to stop me from spiking to you know five times the normal range. Hmm. So it was just like building confidence over time, like hmm. being very cautious, um, and also like leaning on exercise. This is the, this is the thing that I, I think people are scared to do is. You can, if you want to correct a, a high blood glucose level, you've got two two options really. You give a correction dose of insulin and or you can move your body. Some people decide they only gotta move their body to bring their blood glucose down. Other people are like, no, I'm just gonna lean on my insulin pen. Well, there is a world where you can do a little bit of both. So you can have a very small, safe dose of insulin and then activate the insulin with a 10 minute walk mm. or a 15 minute walk, you know? So those are the things that I've started to lean on, you know, over the last sort of five, six, seven years. I am. Um I guess I'm quite the kind of the opposite to having that fear of exercise. I exercise a lot myself as well, Drew. I like go to the gym pretty much daily, um, do five to ten k runs, that sort of thing. But I, I always have a fear 
not of exercise but of going low while exercising. So I do tend to urge on the side of caution and do run my level higher. Um, so I think that's probably a good takeaway for, for myself and potentially people like me is to take note of different exercises, take note of what your levels are pre and post and how much insulin's on board. So if you're going to do a 10K run, because running obviously being aerobic, it's it's consistently yep. for most people, you're going to have a downward trend over the over the sort of say 40, 60 minutes, 90 minutes, whatever it is. Like most people are going to go low or trend lower with that kind of exercise. But what about if you're doing a short sprint or high intensity interval workout? Do you then also lean on the higher blood glucose to be safe or are you more comfortable? Like is there less fear around strength training and sprint training than there is around long cardio? Definitely, yeah. Like if I'm going to the gym or uh, doing a short uh, burst of exercise, I'm definitely feeling a lot more comfortable. Um, but I know when I do a 10K run, it'll take me, I'll disconnect from my insulin pump for 55 minutes or something like that. Um, what I have started to find is, yeah, that my level, even though I'm not getting any insulin, um, it does remain consistent or does drop a little bit. Yeah. Um, so that, yeah, I think that, that long distance uh, is definitely more of a fear. But then also I'm disconnected from my insulin pump. So if I'm going to do, you know, a half marathon next year, um, I'll need to work out a way to still receive insulin through a basal dose um, but be mindful that I will be, you know, going for two and a half hours, something like that. Do you still yeah. have any like advice around that? Or So, yeah, I think the exercise strategies are so different if you're on a pump versus on multiple daily injections. Um, I've never done I've never been on a pump, so I'm not experienced with it. Um, but with the multiple daily injections, that's sort of like what I've learned. This, most of the strategies, that's where I, I've learned them, doing injections. Um, what, I've, what I tend to do is I just look at some research around different intensities and what they tend to do to subjects in these studies. So like sprint training, 10-second sprints are actually a really good way to potentially prevent going low when you're doing your cardio. So in these studies, they look at the effect of a short sprint of 10 seconds, all out 120% effort, you like kill yourself for 10 seconds, and then they do steady-state cardio, and the blood glucose drop from the steady-state cardio is nowhere near as severe when you do a 10-second sprint before. So you can there's like little tools that you can sort of – obviously, you're not going to do that on – race day when you're doing a marathon no like, i think you should Brayden. i think you need to <laughs> add that in before, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> just tie yourself out before the marathon with some Smart. 10 second sprints um and then sort of the opposite as well right so like if you know that there's a mode of exercise that sends your blood glucose up well then you can lean on a slower warm-up that's sort of brings you down before you ramp into that crazy strength training like if you just wake up straight out of bed cortisol's high have a coffee adrenaline and cortisol even higher and then you just go into some sprint training or CrossFit or whatever it is, don't be surprised if your blood glucose goes up, all right? So what are the strategies to get around that? Well, maybe it's like a long and slow warm-up. That could be enough to flatten the curve a little bit um, and also learning how to safely take a pre-bolus before the workout, you know? If you know, like make the mistake over and over, like get the consistency, go, okay, I've done CrossFit every day for the last month Every workout, my blood glucose has gone up five millimoles. Is it safe for me to take half a unit or one unit before the workout? Try, try it. Have glucose on you at all times. 
you're wearing a CGM, check const like throughout the whole workout. And if at any point it starts to dip, you you can intervene, right? But I think it's giving people the the agency to sort of take control over these decisions because a lot of people are just so scared of insulin exercise that they never play with these things. Like it's it's okay to, to experiment, you know, it's mm -hmm. actually important. And it's sounding like, you know, the critical message here is knowledge is power. So understand, take the time to understand how these different kinds of exercise affects your body. Uh, take note, write it down yeah. um, and give yourself some grace. Yes. Give yourself some grace to be out of range exactly. for an hour. Exactly. Surrender to those. Like if you're living and dying by the numbers, diabetes is hard enough. Mm. Like it's okay to make some mistakes early on, especially if you can learn from them early and then you probably won't make them as many times down the track. Mm. And speaking of the numbers, so you've just mentioned you use a CGM and you're on MDIs, uh, but you've been on a bit of a journey with your management style because there was a time when you were sceptical and hesitant of using a CGM. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. And when you were diagnosed, I've, I've heard you quote that you were finger pricking 16 times a day mm. because you were so, you do, you do love your data. Yeah. Can you talk us through how did you come around to deciding to use a CGM when you were so uh, focused on being tech free? How did how did your mindset shift? Yeah, I mean the reason I was so focused on being tech free is because I just didn't like the idea of wearing my condition on my body, like being mm -hmm. attached to a physical representation of my diabetes every day, like a reminder, physical reminder. And then people ask you about it. I just didn't want to talk about it. I wasn't comfortable in the early days of talking about it. I would hide it. Mm -hmm. um, and then, as you say, I still wanted the data. I, I knew it was important, so I would check sometimes 15 plus times a day, like up to 20 times a day with finger pricks, and my fingers were destroyed, but I didn't even care about that. Like, mm. I just wanted to you know, be free of any device attached to me, but also have good management, which I had for a long time. Like my, All of my A1Cs every you know, few months were fantastic. I was happy, everything was great. And then I decided to do like a long endurance event. So it was like a 250 kilometer bike ride Oh yeah, just casual. Just a casual two fifty bike ride, mm. and it was it was a, called around the bay in in uh, in Melbourne, mm. and I was like, you know what, I'm probably gonna try CGM for this ride, just because how am I gonna prick my finger on the bike? Mm. It's just not gonna happen. I have to get off the bike what twenty times, thirty, forty times. I can't get off the bike. I need a. It's like a race, right? So I wore a CGM, and straight away I was like, wow, this is really easy. And then after the ride. I left it in for a few days, obviously, to make the most of the sensor. I had 10 days in it. Mm. And those next nine days, I was like, wow, this is actually, not only is the data better, I can see trends and patterns. I've got more data to give my doctor. It's easier. My fingers aren't bleeding anymore. And like all of these things. And I'm like, actually, you know what? I think I could do this. Mm. And then, so that was my first step into it. And now if my CGM's off for even like two days, I'm like, where, where is it? Get it back on. Where's know? the data? Yes, yes. <laughs> so I think I just understood that the data is very important, that a CGM makes life not just easier to manage, but it's the safety. So I used to set, the, I can't believe I used to do this. I used to set an alarm. When I, the first year after being diagnosed, I set an alarm every single night for two every on the, on the two hours. No, you didn't. I swear to God. <laughs> on the two hours. Because... Uh, th my diabetes educator told me that, you know, people can die in their sleep. And oh, no. So, yeah, so I was so nervous about dying in my sleep that I set an alarm for every two hours and I would check my blood glucose. Oh. So I'd wake up, you know, four, five times a night to finger prick. And when I had the CGM on and I'm like, it's got alerts and alarms, no more alarm setting to, to wake up intentionally. 
I start to sleep better. And then when I slept better, my diabetes management was better. And it was just this beautiful, positive cycle. Oh. But yeah, I had a year of basically no, like no sleep. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. I can't believe I used, I used to do that. Oh, Crazy. man. Yeah. The, the commitment. I know. Um, Wild. But uh, I really... I think a lot of people can relate to what you said in the beginning about not wanting to have something attached to you and having your diabetes on show. This is a really common feeling in our community as well. Not necessarily of hiding your diabetes, but, and it's not out of shame, just perhaps you don't necessarily identify as someone who has diabetes. For you, it's potentially not a main characteristic of who you are. You know, there's so many more exciting things about you than just your diabetes. So having people ask you about it all the time might feel um, a bit weird. And not everyone wants to be loud and proud about their diabetes, which mm. is absolutely fine. And this is something Brayden has talked about. You know, Brayden, you mentioned about finger pricking under tables, dosing in bathrooms. Drew, do you have any learnings around growing into your diabetes or how you've made it fit into your identity? Because now you are, uh, you talk about it quite frequently on Instagram and um, you do seem to be, you know, proud of yeah, of. Yeah of it being a part of your personality now. How, how have you grown into that mindset? I think it took, took multiple years to rebuild some confidence and to identify with like the, the new me. You know, for the mm. first few years, it was the same as, as Brayden. It was hiding away. It was finger pricking in bathrooms, dosing in bathrooms or in my car. Um, and a lot of it was just not socializing. Like I did not want to go out. I didn't want to be seen. I would miss every social event because I didn't want to have to deal with can I drink alcohol? What am I going to eat? I don't want to bother people. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want anyone to see it because I felt unwell. I looked unwell. I was 13 kilos lighter than I was previously. So I just, I didn't even want to go out of my house. Mm -hmm. And then, I mean, after a few years of just slowly stepping towards a healthier person and gaining some weight back and building some confidence, I think I just got to the point where I was like actually really proud of it. I was like, I'm, I'm good now. Like I feel confident in my skin. I'm performing well again. I'm playing a decent level sport. I'm ready to get out there and actually just talk about it and wear it. And I, I don't think it was like a decision, so to speak. I, there was a day when I did, I did have a moment where I sort of decided, I'm like, it was like in this ref self-reflection, I was saying to myself, I've got type one diabetes. I am educated as a sports scientist. My parents are doctors. I'm in a really good position here. If anyone should get diabetes, it's kind of me. Like that's sort of what I was thinking compared to other people who are less privileged, who this condition could completely derail their life. I'm like thinking, I'm in actually a pretty good position here to turn this into something. And I, that was a day where I kind of made a decision. I'm like, I can, I'm going to do something with this. I didn't know what it was going to be, mm -hmm. but I was like, I can do something with this. Um, but I think in terms of wearing it proudly, it just, it just was confidence. When you start to see positive, you know, results and see good numbers and A1C is nice and, you know, in range and all these things, I was like, w why would I hide it? Like, there's nothing to hide anymore. And I just, you just identify with it over time, I think. Mm -hmm. And I, I think this is very common for people. I did work with someone, though, who she was a photographer. And I used to do this, like, when I was in my early 20s, it was like e-commerce e photo shoots. You're on set for nine hours and you're just literally just changing shirt over and over and over. You put on like a hundred t-shirts in a day mm -hmm. and I'm spending a full day with a photographer. It's basically just me and her and a stylist and she's just snapping next shirt, snapping. And we're doing this all day. And I worked with her for six to 12 months. 
after 12 months, I found out she had type 1 diabetes. She never told me. She knew I had. Mm-hmm. She never told me. She hid it away. I never saw her inject. She didn't inject with meals. Talking about eating disorders. Wow. She never injected with her meals because she knew she would maintain a lower body weight if she didn't inject insulin. Mm. She checked her blood glucose once a day with a finger prick. So she hid it so, not just from me, but from herself. Like she had not identified with it mm-hmm. that I spent a whole year with her and she never talked about it. And then one day I just saw her slide off and prick a finger and I said to her, what, 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 do you, what did you just do there? I thought she was checking her ketones like she was a keto diet or something. Mm. She had type 1 diabetes. She just didn't have the confidence to talk about it or wear it proudly in front of anyone, let alone someone else with diabetes, you know. Let alone someone else who would have gotten it. Would have got it straight away. Yeah. Yep. yep. She mm. just didn't have it. She hadn't identified with it. Mm. So yeah, it sounds like becoming more comfortable with it, kind of coming to terms with, okay, I'm going to have diabetes the rest of my life. And then that's how you you grew that feeling of pride because it is pretty incredible what people with diabetes do every day. You are doing something that uh, most people could not even fathom. You are manually simulating an organ that a lot of people take for granted. Mm. And it absolutely should be something that both you and Brayden are very proud of um, because it's incredible when you think about it. Right. And regardless of whether you're doing a good or a bad job of that. Absolutely. You should be proud of it. Absolutely. You're still doing it. Yep. You're still still alive. You're still standing. Exactly. And I want to just be careful not to say that it was the good numbers that made me proud of it. Like, Mm. no, it was the effort you put into it. Even if you're struggling and even if your numbers aren't ideal, the effort of daily management, it's a full-time job mm-hmm. that you did, that you never signed up for and that you can't quit. <laughs> kind of sucks. <laughs> that situation, you know what I mean? Like it's real. So you've just got to you, – you, I mean, what do you do? You either let it derail you or you just build back stronger, you know? Mm-hmm. That's sort of the way I see it. This is something that we talk about too often, Drew, on this podcast, and that's the reason we started this podcast is that there'd be a lot of people out there that we meet, that I meet, that I see, and I wouldn't have a clue that they're diabetic and they might not have a clue that I'm diabetic either, but it's something that we're really passionate about now is breaking that stigma and that awareness around diabetes. And, you know, you mentioned at the start of this podcast the difference between type 1 and type 2 diabetes, you know, but giving people a voice um, and somewhere that they can express themselves as diabetic. And that's something that we're really passionate about. So um, it, it's super interesting to hear how your mindset changed from, yeah, no, nah, I'm going to hide this thing to, hey, let's be open about it and let's chat about it. And I think social media has been a blessing in that way because I sort of think about if we didn't have social media, I'm just getting Dennis is walking over here to interrupt us. <laughs> Do you want to say something, sir? Dennis is finally waking you, up. Yes. He's joined the oh, chat. I think he has something to say. Oh, hey, buddy. Hey, bud. Yeah, uh, let's, uh, let's get him on the pod. Get him <laughs> is this the first dog ever on the pod? Yeah. It absolutely is. Oh, here we yeah, go. See? He does have a so, voice. Do you want to say that in the microphone? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what were we saying before I got interrupted there? We were talking, oh, social media. Um, mm. Yeah, think about people who get di- or, you know, got diagnosed with diabetes long before social media, how alone you could feel, right? Hmm. You have to find a physical community of people with diabetes just to be able to talk about it. Now we have this incredible platform where you can reach thousands, millions of people with diabetes. <laughs> yes, he agrees. There we go. Well, I also think that, like, I, how long have you had diabetes? Um, 2007, 16 years. 16 years. And how? so you were how old when you were diagnosed? I was 2007. I was 12. 
See, that's, this is the thing, right? Like, in a way, being diagnosed at 22 is so much easier. Like, I can only imagine. Do you reckon? Like, I, I do. I think I got all of the bad habits and things out of my system without worrying about diabetes. I got to have a all those teen years and early 20s at least, you know, got to do everything. Yeah. And then once you sort I, of... Yeah. But you think it's the opposite, you reckon? Yeah, I do, honestly, because I, I obviously don't remember life without diabetes. So it's kind of just become a part of who I am and I've never let it control my lifestyle or anything at all. Like I just sort of do what I need to do with diabetes but live my life like a normal human being. So, I, um, you know, I didn't know... I, I learned everything as I went along, like as I went, you know, got to 18 and started drinking, I learned the effects of alcohol and diabetes and that sort of thing, but didn't let it stop me from doing anything still. Yeah, that, it, that is a good point. Like it is. No, that's a good point. Yeah, there is, there's no. Much for muchness. Exactly. There's no easy or harder or good or bad. Like they're all uniquely challenging. Um I just think like I've seen, like I work with some kids who I see them at school with diabetes and it looks like it's just a little bit, it's just a little bit more complicated, a little bit more difficult than say someone who's just on autopilot. They look at their friends and birthday parties and birthday cake and those kinds of things a kid shouldn't have to think about, but they do. But as you say, if it's all you ever know, perhaps your baseline, that's your baseline. That's, you know, that's what life is. Um, yeah. In other, in other ways, yeah, oh, if you get diagnosed as an adult, it could be even more challenging for people. Because you've got to re-identify with the new you, you know? Yeah, that's a conversation that we've had with a few people is that they've really struggled um, after being diagnosed as an adult because they know who they are, but then all of a sudden their life's sort of flipped upside down. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Whereas, yeah, for me, like, it was installed in me pretty young that the, the effects of poor control and... Um, everything like that. So it was very militant for me to make sure that I was controlling it really well. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting in the different stages of life diagnosis can yeah. Yeah, affect, it's true. I suppose, yeah, different people. I mean, yeah, I think like people who are diagnosed as like a really young kid literally know no different. But I think, yeah, the older you get, you certainly you develop this idea of who you are and then it just changes overnight. It's, it's it's hard. It's hard to deal with. And you're not equipped to deal with it because no one teaches you how to handle a diagnosis of diabetes. You're just like, okay, good luck. Get out there. <laughs> that's what Enjoy. it feels like. Yeah, 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 that's what it feels like. So, Drew, you describe yourself as a happy, healthy guy living, thriving with type 1 diabetes. But we obviously know as diabetic, diabetes really can be a roller coaster of ups and downs. Um, and something that I'm really passionate about and advocate for is men's mental health. Um, obviously, this podcast will be released in November, so shout out to all the Mo's out there. Um, but we know that people with diabetes um, are twice as more likely to experience, you know, uh, depression and more twice as likely to uh, potentially, you know, end their life, um, which is, you know, very dark, but it's the stats. So... Um, you've talked about how the plant-based diet and everything sort of changed your lifestyle, but do you have, um, you know, family and friends that you, you lean on for those tough times and what do you do during those tough times of diabetes? 
Yeah, I was talking to Ash just before we hit record about this sort of stuff. Um, and I, I haven't reflected on this that much, but even just in our brief two-minute conversation before we recorded, I was thinking, I am very lucky that I've never felt diabetes burnout. I've never experienced, I mean, maybe a couple of small moments over the years where I'm like, I hate this, this sucks. But they're so short-lived. I'm talking like, you know, in the middle of the night, my Dexcom going off and waking me up and my sleep's ruined and my blood sugar's low and I have to wake up and I'm eating food in the night. And like in those moments, I'm like, this sucks. I just want to go to sleep. I've got a big day tomorrow. But literally, and then I think, well, my Dexcom saved me. Insulin exists, the invention of it. And then you get grateful. You're like, actually, this is unreal. I can live such a good life. So I have like tiny moments over the years, literally a handful where I'm like, this sucks. I feel, I wish I didn't have it, but I've never felt the burnout of like the full-time job of it, just like weighing me down. I mean, when I used to do the 15, 20 injection, uh, finger pricks a day, there were days where I was like, this is just doesn't hurt. Like my finger, got no, I can't get blood out anymore. I'm all calloused up and scarred up. And like occasionally then I would also have some, you know, partially negative thoughts. But for the most part, I have found a way to really enjoy life with diabetes. Like truly like just focusing on the, the little things, the, the non-diabetes related things. Like I can find joy in the smallest things every day. Like just the, the mood I'm in after a workout. Like that, that alone is enough for me to just be like, this. I'm fine. This is great. Or like jumping into the ocean. I swim every day. I've never missed a day. It's these things. Those for me are the mindful like, like tools. They're just the, th- the things you do every day that you have to do or you want to do. And how do you find a way to enjoy them? Like that keeps me, I don't feel burnt out at all. Like I really just feel like every day there's, there's so much to look forward to. So, I, but I know how hard it is for people. Like I know how hard it is. And I don't know why in my case, you know, it's not, I'm not burnt out and other people are. I, I, I don't know. I, I wish I knew the answer to that. Um, have you felt that, the burnout? Uh, periodically, yeah, when I'm having tough times, mostly when I was a lot younger and still trying to come to terms with diabetes and being different, you know, going through school, having a finger prick, having to inject and being that point of difference for people to sort of pick on you and that sort of thing. Um, as I've gotten older, I have embraced it uh, and I'm very much more open to diabetes and don't let it control me or stop me from doing anything. Um, but obviously, yeah, I know that the burnout is real and I do still finger prick and, you know, sometimes it's like, oh, get a blood uh, a blood vessel or a nerve or something and it really hurts. Um, but, yeah, yeah I, I've come to terms with it myself, but um, what advice do you reckon you'd give people who do experience burnout um, and do let diabetes affect them a bit more? I, I really think people need to find the joys in everyday life. Like you wouldn't believe how quickly – a workout or a cold plunge or a, you know, I don't know, hanging out with friends, just something that just that breaks that cycle of negativity. Like it could be, the, you know, literally just going for a walk. Or like find those tools. Like there's so many daily tools. For me, it's the non-negotiables are I need to get into the ocean every day and I need to like move my body. Like those are real non-negotiables. And if I'm having a bad day, I can break that cycle just by leaning on those tools, right? So it's like build a toolkit. What what is your toolkit? Maybe for you, it's playing an instrument. Maybe it's I don't know, going for a hike, go camping for a weekend, whatever it is. You got to just find tools because if you just 
have no coping mechanisms, no tools, nothing to lean on, and you're letting these negative, you know, the negative self-talk just echo in your head all day, it's exhausting. Of course you're going to get burnt out. So like how do you break those cycles? It's those mindfulness tools for me. And most of them are usually, this sounds counterintuitive, but they're mostly physically difficult. Like if you can do something hard to yourself, like a really hard workout or a three minutes in a cold plunge, it builds resilience and it just breaks the cycle. And then you feel endorphins flood your body and then you feel amazing after. And it's like remembering how good you feel after those things and just sprinkling, sprinkling them in your, in your days, get your daily dose. <laughs> Love that. Nice little plug. <laughs> That's great advice. It is finding those things, I suppose, for those people. Um, it does take your, your mind off diabetes for, it could be a minute, it could be five minutes, 10 minutes, whatever it might be, but finding those little joys in life, and those little wins. Yeah, it's the small things, eh? Mm. So, Drew, you're definitely someone who has their fingers in a lot of different pies, and that's actually why we're talking to you today, because you've just expanded your repertoire to include some diabetes products uh, under your name. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. So... I have just released a insulin pen needle called Drew's Daily Dose Pen Needles, which are going to pharmacies all across Australia. And the whole idea here was, obviously we need the needles, everyone who, who injects. And even if you're on a pump, you still need to have needles because if you have pump failures or whatever, you, you, you might need to inject from time to time. Mm-hmm. But my thinking was, I want to, obviously I'm an educator and I want to help people, right? Mm-hmm. So how can I reach more people with diabetes? Well, if I can provide a product that everyone needs and it's in pharmacies mm-hmm. all across Australia and somebody with diabetes goes into their pharmacy and needs a pen needle and maybe they've never heard of Drew's Daily Dose or, or me, they can learn about what the brand is and then on the box there's a QR code that takes them to like an online education platform. Mm-hmm. So it's just for me, it was like such a, it was a no-brainer, a way to give them a product they need and give them the online educational side of things so they can actually make lifestyle modifications. Mm. I was just thinking like, how can I reach more people? How can I have a bigger impact? And that was the first sort of product that came to mind. And yeah, we launched just a couple of weeks ago and it's oh. hopefully in a pharmacy near you. But, and, and also the beautiful thing about the NDSS is that you go into a pharmacy, you can ask for any NDSS product and they'll stock it. Mm-hmm. Right, so I'm hoping people go in and ask for Drew's data as needed. Or they could go to a very special website and get their Drew's Daily Dose Needles yeah. delivered in their strip supply box. Don't even walk into the pharmacy. No. Just go to... Just jump on your mobile. Stripsupply.com, is it? Yeah, yeah, there yeah. Uh, strips.supply. There we go. We're, we're too fancy for a .com. Um, but I think that's been the general thread of this, our whole chat today, is that knowledge is power. Yeah. And yeah. Um, the more that you know, um, the more education you have, the more confident you're going to be to manage your diabetes. And that's exactly, you know, what you're trying to do is... Um, creating a product that isn't just, it's not just a needle, it's everything that's going to come with it. But do tell us what, you know, what makes the needle so special? Do you? Well, firstly, I think that a lot of the the needles um, that people have used in the past Mm. are sort of like those well-known pharmaceutical companies and, you know, this one's like a, it's a small business run from an iPhone Mm. kind of thing, you know, Mm. like it's me trying to help. It looks different, the branding's different. Uh, but the actual ergonomics of the needle are, are amazing. Like I've tried lots of different needles over the years, mm-hmm. and you know we 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 weren't going to put out a product that we didn't think would rival any needle. So this one, in my opinion, is 
as good as you can get. It's um, like the, the the surface area of the plastic of the needle, when it's touching your skin, it's a large surface area, so the needle looks optically a bit shorter, and it's less there's less dis discomfort because that surface area is so large on your skin. Also, I've, I've used other needles that have a very, very, very small surface area of where the needle comes out of the plastic, and it feels like the needle's super long, it looks mm -hmm. longer. Mm -hmm. um, so like the product, I mean, a needle, people say a needle's a needle, but it's actually not, like there are better designs, and over the years they've changed so much. I mean. People with diabetes used to use syringes, right? Long syringes that you'd like <laughs> pull back, pull back yeah. and, you know, like the tech changes mm. over the years and we want to just try to keep you know, progressive with how the tech changes and mm. have a great product. And how often do you see someone's face on your medical box? Like you yeah. can actually see the, the founder behind the business. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, which I mean, I. Just trying to make it more personal, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, I'm sure people are sick of seeing my face uh, all over Strip <laughs> Supply, but I mean, people love to be able to relate to a person and right. to make diabetes just a little bit warmer as yeah. well. I think, like, when you, when you pick up a box of needles, this is my experience anyway. Mm. If I could see a brand where I'm like, oh, that's the guy who also has diabetes, great. Mm. Like, I can relate and maybe I can support him and he's giving me a product. Like it just feels like a more personable experience mm. rather than just having like a one of the big big players, you know, giving out needles. I don't know. Yeah. It just it feels a bit more simple and more a bit more small. Mm. Andrew, how often do you change your needle? Well you meant to change them every single dose. And you do, don't you? I do, however, <laughs> today I didn't. <laughs> Sometimes I will do it, you know, a couple mm. you, you know, if I don't have enough on me. But mm. now I'm sort of there's needles everywhere. Well, I feel like you don't have an excuse now. No, yeah, there's no excuse. No, <laughs> yeah. but it actually is something that, again, is not spoken about enough, I think, is yep. like the education around why why change your needle every dose. Mm. And if, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen what a needle looks like under a microscope. I have. Yeah. Yeah. Well, some of those big pharma companies do have some very powerful graphics. Right. Yeah. It's crazy how, like, mangled and blunt they get. Yes, and they just completely Sharp splinter. And splinter. Yeah. And, and where do you think some of those that metal goes? doing it every day probably goes into your body right? I mean yeah it's surprising you don't go off in a metal detector <laughs> <laughs> I mean yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and also yes. just the way the, the, the insulin flows through a needle like that it's mm. worse and it's more painful there's more trauma mm. and then you get that lipid hypertrophy with the, like, the fattening of, this, of the subcutaneous you know yeah the hardening yeah the hardening and mm. it just it, it always feels better using a needle once <laughs> you know what I mean it's just a smoother injection mm. Now, we're very excited to have Drew's Daily Dose on the Supply. Can't wait for your people to just have it in their hands. Absolutely. So um, feel free to get in touch if you are a Strip Supply customer and you want to give one of Drew's uh, Daily Dose boxes a go. We can chuck one in your next order. Um, and tag us on social media. This is what else I want to do. I want yeah. people to, like, share the love a little bit. You know, like somebody, the, I think the first customer, like, put, took a picture and, like, posted it. I'm like, That's, that feels great. Doesn't it feel good? It's nice. Seeing, Seeing your somebody, labor of love yeah, out tennis. in the wild, someone that you don't know yes. as well. I remember the first time I saw someone post a photo of their strip supply box. Yeah. It just felt real. Yeah. Yeah. And you feel like you're, you're, you're making an impact. They're happy, you're happy. It's, yeah. It's good oh, it's all, we're all just loved up. <laughs> <laughs> so you've got your needles out in the marketplace. We're super excited. What's next, Drew? What's on the horizon? What's on the horizon? So the online education platform is going to be a, a big thing that I'm working on. Like, mm -hmm. still finding my feet there. Like, how much content to give out, how frequently, mm -hmm. what style of content people want to hear mm -hmm. and receive. Um, a lot of it's going to be like video, obviously video content. Mm -hmm. A lot of like workouts. I want to do a lot of like live sort of Q and A's and 
webinars and educational stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want to run a retreat. I've been doing retreats for the last few few years. I just got back from Bali about a month ago. We, we did a non-diabetes related retreat, but we had like 40 to 50 people come. It was just so much fun, so rewarding, life-changing experience for everyone, like the hosts and the guests. So I want to do a diabetes retreat soon. Mm. Just try to get as many people as possible with diabetes, all in one place, maybe Bali. Something about Bali is just fun. It's close to Australia. It's cheap. Wouldn't say no to Bali. Yeah, wouldn't say no. Would yeah. you come? Oh, absolutely. Would I be invited? Because you're invited. <laughs> Everyone's invited. Okay. Even though um, you're diabetes, you're invited. I, I am such a big advocate. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, we hear about, you know, how beneficial, like, camps are for kids with diabetes. But there's nothing like that for adults. To right. get everyone all in one place. Um, particularly people from all over Australia, you know, in one place to yeah. be able to, to learn from each other and, and you have learn conversations. A lot. It's incredible. Like, mm. there were two people with diabetes at the last retreat. Mm. And just seeing the different ways that we manage our condition. And, like, one of them was on Omnipod, the other on a pump, mm. the other, like, MDI. Like, it's just so different. Yeah. And you're all just teaching each other and learning and just even just feeling supported is nice. Mm. Like, we're all just in you know, it together. You know? Yeah, the relatability. Yeah. Mm. Well, I mean, I think Brayden's taught a few people a few things about uh, Brayden cuts holes in the um, pockets of all of his pants so that his insulin pump infusion set runs straight from the pocket of his pants. Uh, yes. Straight underneath so you can't see it from the outside. Never. Yeah, stuff like that. You wouldn't even know. You should start a fashion yeah. line. He should. <laughs> well, Drew, you're a great role model for living your life to the fullest despite having diabetes. Um, where can people find you on socials? Where can they head? So I'm probably most active on um, Instagram, Drew's Daily Dose. There's like dots in there and stuff, but I think I think Drew's Drew Harrisburg, dot Daily yeah. dot Dose. <laughs> but if you just do Drew Harrisburg, I should come up. Follow Dennis. Everyone loves Dennis. The mm -hmm. Daily Dose of Dennis. It's also got a dot between each word. Yeah. Or just type in Dennis Harrisburg. You'll find him there. <laughs> um, but yeah, most most active on Instagram. I, I'm trying and not trying to get involved in TikTok just to reach more people, but I just can't get across the platform. I'm trying. I know it's important. Yep. You don't like yeah. dancing? Oh, I just selfie dancing and it's just, I can't do it. I do have a TikTok. I don't I don't ever post on it, but it's there. And But mostly my website, drewsdailydose.com, and I've got like training programs and obviously the needles. But Instagram, I'm most active. And if like, that's if you message me, that's where I'll probably hopefully find your message and we can chat and get in touch. Amazing. And do you, do you have any final words of wisdom for the listeners out there? Yeah, I mean, like we covered a lot. Um, I'm just such an advocate for, obviously this is going to sound cheesy, but getting your daily dose of all the right things, right? So it's like <laughs> daily dose of movement. I've got these five pillars that I sort of structure my life by. So mm -hmm. Movement, nutrition, daily living, which is it's a pillar that requires a little bit of explaining, we'll save it for another time, but it's like six things that I like to, it's like a checklist, six things that I like to do every day, the daily living pillar, mindfulness, and then obviously blood glucose and insulin control. So for me, it's just non-negotiable. I have a checklist every day. Five pillars make up my wellness. I just have to find a way to get my daily dose of them, and I feel like I can really just keep thriving. And that's why I feel like I'm not burnt out. I've got some structure to my days and my routine and my management. So I think just find structure, find those things. What are the non-negotiables? What are the things that make you actually feel mentally and, and you know, psychologically healthy? And what are the things that improve your diabetes management and just find a way to just get your daily dose? Yeah, so inspirational. It's amazing. Um, 
Thanks so much for jumping on, Drew. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat diabetes to you and with you. Um, of course, if you're ever in Brisbane, let us know. We'll pop in another chat. Yeah, no, thanks for having me, guys. This is really fun, and I feel like there's so much we didn't talk about. Mm. Maybe we do round two. Yeah, I think so. Maybe we do a, a breezy yeah. in-person round two. I think so. Okay, so that's all we've got time for for today's episode. Be sure to follow us uh, on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this podcast. Leave us a five-star review. You can also find us on Instagram at stripped.supply. And we'll be back in your ears next week. Now, Drew, we close out every episode with our tagline. Would you like to do the honours? Tell diabetes to get As always, nothing you hear on the Stripped Pod should be a substitute for personalised professional medical advice. Please always consult your clinician or other medical professional before making any changes to your diet, dosages or healthcare plan.